Welcome to the Cato Institute and to our first biannual conference on the First Amendment. My name is John Samples. I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute, and I will be your guide through today, moderating each of the panels, uh, with the exception of the keynote ad address at lunch. Um, in, so I have four panels, uh, then a lunch with a keynote address, and during each of these panels, there will also be a chance for questions and answers. First, some administrative matters. Please follow my example, forgotten example, and turn off your cell phone. Um, and then we, we shall begin. Uh, the First Amendment was ratified December 15, 1791, 226 years ago. The amendment arrived at the, the center of Supreme Court jurisprudence almost a century ago in the famous Schenck's, Debs, Frowork, and Abrams cases. For half that century, half of the century where the First Amendment has been vital, uh, the Supreme Court has offered broad protections to free speech limited only by immediate incitement to violence and malicious libel. The exceptions to free speech protections of the First Amendment have been very, very limited. That protection has even come, as we shall hear this morning, to include spending money funding political speech. So the future of the First Amendment might seem secure, but is it? Almost all Americans support the First Amendment in theory, but many do not support its application to controversial or obnoxious speech, let alone to religious conscience in conflict with social norms. We shall hear more about this this afternoon uh, uh, when we talk about Emily Eakins presents material about public opinion today, not in the past. And of course, the current president's doubts about free speech seem to go beyond the actual malice standard for libel. His conflict with New York Times versus Sullivan came out during the campaign, but it seems to go beyond that. And indeed, populism is rarely the friend of limits of powers, on, uh, limits of power of majorities, and the First Amendment is about limiting the power of government, and often that means limiting the power of majorities. So our topic could be not be more timely. And indeed, the turnout for this uh, conference itself indicates that the First Amendment has come to the front of American public policy. The interest in these issues is daily, and they go very deeply indeed. So what is the future of the First Amendment will be the issue we are dealing with today. I want to begin with some issues that are frequent and have been frequently discussed. Uh, our first speaker will deal with the issue in a sense of polarization. One of my concerns is that the First Amendment, by its nature, should attract bipartisan, by ideological, broad support in the society. As Madison once said, perhaps the American people can grow to love the Bill of Rights. It needs support from everyone. But we live in a time with, particularly if you live here in Washington, you will have noticed that any issue, whatever it, its reality uh, and whatever the kind of partisan character of it or lack of partisan character, soon becomes divided between Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, and so on. 
My great concern is that as we go through time, the First Amendment itself, the protections for religious conscience, the Establishment Clause on religion, and above all, freedom of the speech and freedom of the press, indeed, the press itself seems now under attack, all of these things will become ideological, polarized, and in which you're for or against the First Amendment, depending on what your party and your ideology is. That would be, there's always conflict and debate, but for and against would be a disaster for the First Amendment. For that reason, I wanted to start our program with a discussion of one of the best people, one of the best public intellectuals of my knowledge on First Amendment issues, freedom of speech, and other issues. In 30 years of practice, Bob Bauer has provided counseling and representation on matters involving regulation of political activity before the courts and administrative agencies of national party committees, candidates, political committees, individuals, federal office holders, corporations, and trade associations, and tax-exempt groups. I might say also, I think he has some experience with uh, impeachment. Uh, he served as White House counsel to President Obama, uh, he had been the chief election lawyer for President Obama 2008 and Obama 2012. He returned to private practice in June 2011. In 2013, the president named Bob to be co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. He's author of several books, United States Federal Election Law, Soft Money, Hard Law, A Guide to the New Campaign Finance Law, which saw a new edition. And by the way, that's also the name of Bob's excellent blog, where you can keep up with uh, one of the most thoughtful people on campaign finance matters on, an, uh, if not a daily basis, on a regular basis. He also has written uh, numerous articles, and he serves on the National Advisory Board of the Journal of Law and Politics. In 2000, he received the Burton Award for legal achievement for his legal writing. It's very uh, much a pleasure for me to, um, once again, Welcome Bob Bauer to the Cato Institute. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. The title of, for my purpose, is a broad one, Progressivism in the First Amendment. And of course, it tracks, um, and maybe it's a bit of a critique, of a set of beliefs that I'm both associated with and uh, largely characterizes many of the client interests uh, that I've been involved with over time. I'm a Democrat. I view myself as a progressive, although I also realize that one has to wrestle sometimes with people about precisely what that means. But I think in general terms, let's just say um, I come from the left in the variety, at least, of left thinking that is sometimes described as progressivism. And in, other, in a different age, uh, it was described as liberalism. And I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of where I would like to sort of situate my own thinking on that for a moment, because I think precision of terms here is critically important. But what I want to do, and this is somewhat of an echo of John's opening remark about the opportunistic character of commitments to free speech, is talk a little bit about uh, some of the dangers of that, both for progressives and also, I think we see, and I will discuss a little bit on the quote unquote right, and try to look past that and understand perhaps where uh, we might look for some relief from that. Some relief from that gives, gives us some assurance that we've established a reasonably secure mooring in thinking about free speech and First Amendment issues. 
the sphere in which I'm going to be directing my remarks or to which I'm going to be directing my remarks is very much the political sphere, the sphere of political action, the sphere of public debate with a view toward shaping public policy. Obviously, there are First Amendment issues around uh, other activities in our society, such as literary productions and the like. I'm going to be very focused here on politics. So let me begin by talking a little bit about progressivism, uh, how it's viewed, sort of, for these purposes, how we might think about it, and where I think uh, some of the stereotypes could trip us up and could be confusing not just to critics of progressives, but maybe to progressives themselves. Let me broadly say that I look at progressivism, and I'm going to have to descend to a certain level of abstraction here, as differing from their colleagues and interlocutors on the right in their vision of the appropriate role of government in alleviating communal and human suffering and achieving a vision of social justice. That's not the only point of difference, but I want to focus on that for a moment. And I want to say to begin with, by way of flicking aside some common stereotypes, having that view is not incompatible with a concern about the size or efficiency of government, a skepticism about government, or an understanding of the limits of government, it's not inconsistent with respect for federalism. Uh, think about Yale Law Dean Heather Gherkin, who's recently written quite a bit about uh, the importance to progressives of thinking about public policy resolution in federalist terms and the importance of dev devolving some responsibility for major public policy issues to the states and localities. And it's not inconsistent either with a, sensitive toward, a sensitivity toward the trade-offs between government intervention in our politics and the exercise of individual rights. In fact, the history of progressives in recent years has been one of meaningful conflicts within the progressive community about how to pursue that vision and at the same time respect First Amendment values. One example, John has written about this as one of the nation's authorities, is in the field of federal campaign finance. Some of the unanimity uh, within the progressive community about the significance and the extent of controls on political spending and the associated potential infringements on First Amendment rights, uh, some of those views uh, began to really diverge within the progressive community in beginning in 2000, 2002, with the enactment of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act known as McCain-Feingold. And by the time uh, the litigation over that statute, with its controls on political party spending and other limits, came to the Supreme Court of the United States, the labor movement, which had been an ally of the Democratic Party in promoting campaign finance, split off on some issues presented for speech, for free speech, by McCain-Feingold. Uh, the view being that some of what was being done there uh, to prohibit corporations and unions from arguably getting around the campaign finance restrictions with sham issue advertising. You know, call representative so-and-so, tell him to stop voting to increase taxes on your neighbor. Uh, that some of those restrictions had been so overdrawn they impeded the collective action to which the labor movement is committed and on which its success vitally depends. And even within the academic community, there are very meaningful splits within the progressive community about how to treat topics like, for example, hate speech. I have in mind a well-known uh, debate and disagreement between my colleagues at uh, New York University, uh, Jeremy Waldron and the late Ronald Dworkin. Jeremy Waldron has written a book uh, attempting to defend reasonably far-reaching extensions, though carefully drawn extension uh, uh, limitations on hate speech. He has written that those restrictions on hate speech, as we see this issue played out on campuses, are necessary to protect, and I quote, the basic dignitary order of society. 
uh, to do so would be to, to not do so would be to, quote, directly or indirectly or deliberately seek to make it impossible for the targets of hate speech to live lives of basic dignity, to which Dworkin responded by saying, free speech is a condition of legitimate government. Law and policies are not legitimate unless they have been adopted through a democratic process. And a process is not democratic if a government has prevented anyone from expressing his convictions about what those laws and policies should be. So there's no uniform progressive view, and schisms have developed around some of these contemporary issues like campaign finance and the regulation of hate speech. But there is a standard view that has some truth to it and that is consistent with the politics of progressivism. And that is one that focuses on power relations and the importance of looking at the effects of uh, the way we order our society, our politics, on who wins and who loses, who ends up on top, who on the bottom. And the view is that uh, some measures are necessary to address those in the society who have the distinct upper hand, who have massive resources, who have entrenched power relationships. And this is expressed, for example, in support to return to campaign finance for restrictions such as those on corporate spending. It is also uh, reflected in the arguments about hate speech to the extent uh, that the focus there is so sharply on speech that is aimed at marginalizing underrepresented or oppressed groups. So power relations tends to be the prism uh, through which uh, these issues are viewed in the progressive community. And in its most principled form, the worries about issues like campaign finance and hate speech definitely follow that broad concern linked to what I said was a vision of social justice with the way power relationships are structured, who's up, who's bottom, who, who's on the bottom, who has superior resources, who always has the upper hand. Now, in truth, you could say, if we were to invert this, uh, we would see uh, some of the characteristics of the standard critique of the right or some conservative forms of free speech uh, argumentation. There, uh, there is a suspicion of government that goes so far as to view it important to preserve uh, inequalities in the society and resources, like, for example, to make it possible for large, large companies, massive aggregations of wealth, to spend freely to promulgate their political views. You're going to find conservatives um, defending Citizens United on the whole in a way that uh, progressives obviously do not. And also, uh, I think related to this, is a suspicion of certain popular forms of expression, protests in the streets or elsewhere. And I think we see an example of this recently uh, in the conflict uh, that the President of the United States generated between himself and the National Football League. Uh, and there the argument was, uh, there's something going on here that's intolerable. Now we can have a discussion about what he meant and how he sees this and how others who may agree with him might see it differently but arrive at the same place that he does. But fundamentally, um, you will not find that same uh, duality, if you will, in progressive thinking where you're concerned about athletes taking the knee in the circumstances we saw in the NFL, but uh, fighting to the death for the right of large corporations to spend money to influence the political process. Uh, the emphasis is flipped uh, between the two camps. I was thinking, by the way, because it's useful to remember it, when I uh, was reading about the NFL controversy, 
about the enormous controversy about another athlete long time ago and over his free speech rights that gripped the nation during the Vietnam War, and that was Muhammad Ali and his three-year hiatus from professional boxing when he declared himself unwilling to serve in the military uh, on the grounds that he had religious convictions that he sincerely held that prohibited it. Uh, he thought the war, uh, in the light of those religious beliefs, was immoral. He couldn't join it. He couldn't participate in it. And in the end, um, uh, after a long struggle, uh, he succeeded in prevailing on his conscientious objector position and returned to boxing three and a half years um, after, uh, I think at the age of 28, um, after his boxing career came basically to a close because of the controversy over that position. And I just want to cite a couple of quotations uh, from uh, contemporary co commentators that shows how uh, frequently the view of speech follows our normative judgments about the content of speech and whether it's acceptable. Again, to echo John here, Sports Illustrated, of all magazines, said at the time, Muhammad Ali is, quote, just another demagogue and an apologist for his so-called religion and his views on Vietnam don't deserve rebuttal. And Mendel Rivers, a congressman, uh, then I believe a, a senior committee chair, and I think it's the Armed Services Committee, said at the time, we're going to do something uh, about getting him to that draft board, making sure the draft uh, does take Muhammad Ali, rather than leave him home to, quote, double talk. So the theory there was, you know, we got to keep, we got to shut him up. We don't want to hear what he has to say. So the basic view of the behavior of Muhammad Ali was driven in those cases, the view of his right to speech, by some fundamental disagreements with him about what he was saying about the war uh, and what he was saying about the legitimacy of popular protest in response to a government waging that war. So I want to quote Noah Rothman, who just published a piece on free speech in, the comment in commentary, who says this about conservatives in the same way that I'm sure conservatives would say it about progressives. He writes, moreover, the lesson of Trump's rise is that conservatives are not the high-minded stewards of enlightened free expression they pretend to be. They are as energized by the prospect of punishing their political adversaries as anyone, a claim that seems to me to be beyond debate. And I don't think anybody regards a, you know, commentary as a bastion of liberal thought. Um, so let's go now to the more constructive, I, I think, point, which is, where in light of this do we go to break through this kind of polarized thinking, to alleviate the pressure of opportunism on a flourishing uh, First Amendment theory and practice? For progressives, I think the first order of business is to rid themselves of a preoccupation and maybe have the debate expunged from it this constant reference to the marketplace of ideas. The First Amendment values are frequently said to rest on a vision of the marketplace of ideas in which truth battles with fiction and eventually all prospects of truth winning out uh, really depend on keeping that marketplace alive. The marketplace analysis, I think, is very misplaced. It's not a felicitous metaphor. It doesn't really describe uh, the role of speech, as I'm going to say in just a couple of minutes, in politics. And it inflames the views on the left about the role of money in politics, because it suggests that in the marketplace of ideas, the largest share of the discussion is up for purchase. Moreover, I think it's fair to say we ought to be skeptical of the view that truth wins out over fiction as a regular, uh, truth wins out over error as a regular matter, as a predictable matter. Truth does not over win out over error. And our support for First Amendment values shouldn't be grounded in some expectation that truth will eventually um, win out over error. And in fact, which views are truthful and which are uh, erroneous, which will prove to have whatever qualities we attribute to truth, 
may well be a judgment we can't reach in our own lifetime. And so the attempt to do so, I think, is, is frankly self-delusive. I think the question is, how do we think as free speech in the context of what we want in the way of a vibrant politics in our democratic polity? And that should be a concern to left and right alike. Because behind whatever we may charge them with in the way of opportunistic thinking or having their views of free speech shaped by normative judgments, at the end, each of them would subscribe to the proposition, progressives, conservatives of whatever stripe, uh, would subscribe to the opposition, proposition that in this country, we need to have breath and room to breathe for a vibrant politics. And the question is, how do we think about that? And I think of, by my reference to, for example, the marketplace of ideas, I think we oversimplify it. I think we have a tendency to break speech out and attribute to it a certain function that to a significant degree undervalues and as I said, oversimplifies its role. I think the role of speech in the conduct of our vibrant politics, a vibrant politics, is quite complex. Hannah Arendt in her book, of The Promise of Politics, written many years ago, a caution that under the ancient Greek conception, speech and action were not easily divided. The process by which the actions by which we wind up influencing one another, forging what she calls new beginnings, is one in which speech and the actions that are taken alongside, with, in conjunction with, in support of speech, and action, are, they're intertwined. They're very, very closely associated and wrapped up with each other. And we cannot, I think, uh, be sure how speech isolated actually affects the conduct of political behavior. We know, for example, that speech has not only, First Amendment values have not only an expressive element, they have an associative element, and the right of association is central to the conduct of a vibrant politics. And when we try to break things down and treat speech in isolation from the overall conception that we have of how we conduct our politics, I think we are led considerably astray. We also have no way of knowing how particular arrangements for the limitations on speech in our politics will actually affect those politics. We try to predict them as we have in campaign finance and John has written an excellent book uh, showing the working out of unintended consequences and our predictions are invariably inaccurate and sometimes wildly counterproductive. Uh, I like to tell, for example, some of my progressive colleagues that they tell me how much in the way of a limitation on their resources they would like to live with in spending to defeat Donald Trump and I have so far heard uh, no bidders. Um, so I, I, wanna, I don't wanna drag this out further except to give you um, an example from the Berkeley free speech movement of the 1960s. And those of you who are familiar with this, and I think everybody in this audience is, understands the revolt of students at Berkeley in the 1960s against various efforts on the part of university administrators to restrict student political speech to move it off campus. Um, uh, and this was a monumental struggle, as you know, that ended up with a lot of unrest and eventually the resignation of the chancellor of the university. And it's a long and complicated story. I won't go into it here. But it's generally viewed as an event on the left, right? This free speech movement was an event on the left. It was part of the tumultuous 1960s, the protest politics of the 1960s. But I want to tell you about someone named Mona Hutchin who on February 2nd, 1964, uh, showed up in San Francisco on a cable car 
She was a member of an organization called the University Society of Individualists and of Cal Students for Goldwater. And she decided to stand on the a perch within the cable car that was traditionally reserved for male passengers. And she was wearing a button that claimed, I am a right-wing extremist. She insisted on the right to stand there, refused orders to move to a safer spot, and finally the police removed her. She wasn't arrested. That is, until later that year, when at Sproul Hall at Berkeley, uh, she was arrested uh, along with a number of people very much on the left who were part of the Free Speech Movement Steering Committee. Now, that tells me something. She's standing on a cable car. She's wearing a button. Which is the speech? Which is the action? This is her politics. Breaking out the speech component here, it seems to me, is uh, ultimately uh, very, very misleading. It doesn't get us to the heart of what Mona was trying to do. But we do know that when we think hard of what it was that speech meant in that context, which First Amendment values were implicated, not too long after, she was in a room of people who thought very differently about the underlying issues, but they were joined together in their view of the sanctity and significance of free speech. And so I question whether, in fact, the divide of the left and the right on this issue has to be forever sustained. Uh, I think there is a point of convergence. I am very troubled, obviously, about some of the views that are being expressed in our senior leadership. And I think it is a point on which left and right can agree. So thank you. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Bob. Um, Bob mentioned uh, McCain-Feingold, a later case of Citizens United perhaps is now um, both in some ways more divisive, but also has uh, become more famous in many respects. Um, our next speaker will, is an uh, expert on this case, an expert on its consequences and related cultural matters. Uh, and he, but the, this is not, uh, his approach generally has not been one of a legal, he is an economist, and uh, he's more less concerned with doctrine than actual claims made about campaign finance in a First Amendment context. Jeff Milo is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri in Columbia. He's a graduate of the University of Connecticut and received his PhD from Stanford University. His areas of expertise include campaign finance and elections, health policy, and the media. He wrote a, a very famous article on media bias. His research has been published in the American Economic Review, American Journal of Public Health, Election Law Journal, and many other leading scholarly journals. He also crosses over and writes for a political uh, and popular audience and has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and all of the other leading venues of our political life. I'm also uh, very happy and proud to say that uh, Jeff Milo is a adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. And this is why you don't use the uh, for your timing. Jeff Milo, please. Well, thank you. It's nice to, to be here. And uh, in talking about Citizens United, um, it, it's, you really have to talk about people's views about money and politics in general. And uh, I think it's fair to say that there's a conventional wisdom that most people have the following concerns about money and politics, not just the effects of Citizens United, that 
There's too much money in politics. The whole system is corrupt. Elective offices are for sale to the highest bidder. Campaign contributions are the functional equivalent of bribes. All of this serves to distort public policy and make the policy process unresponsive to the people. Um, as a consequence, ordinary citizens are alienated, and, and this is uh, manifest in declining trust in government and voter participation. Uh, so the bottom line is campaign finance reform is needed to restore and preserve the integrity of democracy. I think that's a fair um, summary of uh, a majority of public opinion, but you don't have to believe me. We can actually ask people questions of that sort. So if you ask people, is there too much money in politics? Um, this is from the uh, 2016 Cooperative Congressional Election Study, Nationally Representative Survey of 2,000 persons. You get 89% to agree. And I want to stop right there. 89%, that's an awful lot. If you run a survey, many of you probably have, you know that if you have a survey question that asks people, are you answering a survey? I'm not sure you get 89% to agree. So that's very impressive. Uh, if you go down the line here, elective offices for sale, large majorities agree with that. The uh, omitted category would be those with no opinion. Um, contributions like bribes, large majority agree, et cetera. And right down to the bottom, campaign finance reform is needed 80% uh, to 4%. So there is, there is um, a great demand for reform and great concern about money and politics. I'll just add that in general, once you ask questions that are less general, uh, the support for reform is more of a, of a general support. When you ask about specific types of reform, you get more moderate support, but still very strong support. So there's great demand out there, and in a democracy, we shouldn't be surprised that political entrepreneurs and demagogues make it their business to advocate for reform. The difference between the two being whether you agree with them or not. Um, so, uh, the Constitution, of course, uh, embodies two conflicting ideals. And so with the First Amendment, we have those classical liberal ideals of free speech and association and the right to petition, which would all weigh in favor of government regulation shouldn't interfere with political activity. On the other hand, we've got the embodiment of egalitarian ideals, equal protection of the law, one person, one vote. And as Bob Bauer mentioned, if you're concerned about um, centers of power and disproportionate influence, then how can there be equal protection of the law in a society with uh, inequalities in, in wealth? Uh, and so you need to uh, sort of resolve this conflict somehow. And the way it's been resolved, uh, the precedent goes back to Buckley which is uh, the court has come down more on the First Amendment side, I think, by saying uh, Congress shall make no law uh, except to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption, which of course then begs the question, what is corruption? And, uh, and so there's two different theories we might mention. We could view corruption as um, more in a literal sense of quid pro quo, a transactional view, so bribery and influence peddling are corrupt, and that's what we mean by corruption. Or we could mean something like this, uh, what was described as that progressive concern about uh, disproportionate influence over policy. And they're very different views of corruption. There is a challenge uh, for that progressive view. Um, if you're concerned about um, excessive influence and view that as corrupt, 
then uh, you run into the problem that kind of the whole point of democracy is for people to influence the political process. So you need a clear theory of what is due influence. And in all my years in the business, I've actually never heard anyone articulate what is due influence. So I'm not sure what undue influence is. Again, it's the kind of stuff other people do. Um, and so, but what the court has come down and said is that um, it's, we're going to have a very transactional view of what is corruption. And so only explicit uh, transactions and quid pro quo kinds of uh, corruption are the things that campaign reforms can address. As a consequence, it's okay for government to regulate the source and size of contr uh, contributions made directly to candidates. Those are explicit uh, transactions uh, or ex yeah, explicit. There's a little fuzz on the monitor here. Um, uh, so pro prohibitions on corporate or union contributions would fall within this. It's a way of regulating that explicit transaction. Um, on the other hand, um, it would not be legitimate in this view to limit self-funding by candidates because candidates can't corrupt themselves with their own money. There's no transaction there. Similarly, there's no limits on how much can be spent in support of a ballot proposition. You can't corrupt a ballot proposition. It's written down. Um, and another way in which you can ensure that you don't have corruption is, is to make sure that it isn't an explicit transaction, and that's where independent expenditures come in. Uh, and so since uh, Buckley, at least, we see that uh, limits on individual independent expenditures um, uh, are uh, unconstitutional. So we can view Citizens United as um, really consistent with that precedent. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm just a country economists, but we have to say something about constitutional law here. So one way to view Citizens United is by saying uh, government can't limit corporate um, and by extension union or other group independent expenditures is to say that's completely consistent with this view that it's not a transaction uh, between a candidate and a special interest group. And that's enough of a break to provide some, uh, some protection against corruption. And so our preferences for free speech um, win out as long as those are independent. Uh, speech Now then, of course, um, extended this to um, uh, give us what we now know and love as super PACs, groups that can raise money in unlimited amounts from any source in order to run independent uh, expenditures. So, um, you know, people don't like Citizens United. Here's a, a selected um, group of reactions. And uh, so when you get Alan Grayson and John McCain agreeing that this is the worst decision since Dred Scott, and again, not a constitutional lawyer, but I'm, I think that was a bad one. Um, so when you can get people on the opposite side of the spectrum uh, agreeing like that, then, then that's something, um, you know, I don't think they agree on anything other than maybe their opinion of Trump or healthcare or campaign finance reform, never mind. So, uh, uh, but obviously, um, you know, very strong reactions that Citizens United, um, by, by opening up unlimited spending uh, through this uh, avenue of independent expenditures, 
um, which had always been available to individuals, uh, but opening it up to groups and groups that raise money from other sources is going to have a dramatic impact on our, on our politics. Now, if we um, evaluate Citizens United from the perspective that the majority of the court has suggested is the important way to evaluate campaign finance reform, which is not on how it's affecting influence in politics, but rather how does it affect corruption or the appearance of corruption, um, then, you know, we have to say that in general, not just about Citizens United, but in general when it comes to campaign finance reforms, there's really no evidence that um, uh, reforms have an effect on the uh, number of criminal prosecutions for political corruption uh, or any significant effect on trust and confidence in government. And in particular, if you look uh, before and after changes to regulation of independent expenditures, again, you don't see any impact on political corruption or public trust and confidence in government. And now that I read this, I should amend this. I said there is no evidence. That should say there's no good evidence. There's all kinds of bad evidence, but there's no good systematic scientific uh, evidence. And what I mean by that, let me give you an example. So suppose you wanted to examine whether um, regulations of independent expenditures have some effect on political corruption. Well, we need to measure corruption some way. A common way is to look at prosecutions of state officials for political corruption. We could take advantage of different laws in the states regarding independent expenditures as a kind of natural experiment. Those laws are changing over the last 30, 40 years. And so you can look before and after a state changes laws. Is there any effect on corruption? That's the treatment. You need a control. You look contemporaneously at states that don't change their laws and see if there's a difference. We call this uh, a difference in differences. And if you do that, what you'll find is that uh, not only is there no systematic relationship between limits on independent expenditures at the state level and uh, uh, prosecutions for political corruption, there's no systematic relationship in general between state campaign finance reform and corruption. Now, one concern could be that, well, that's not capturing everything that's corrupt about corruption, to use that kind of a measure. And, uh, and so uh, maybe that's the, the problem there. It's too restrictive of a measure of corruption. So instead, we could look at uh, something broader. How about public opinion, public trust and confidence in government, which should reflect something about our beliefs about how corrupt government is, and it's certainly consistent. It's a typical oper operationalization of this concept of the appearance of corruption, to look at people's trust and confidence in, in government. Um, and I guess, um, uh, given the venue, we should say it's not obvious that people should have trust and confidence in government, but let's take it as given that more, all else constant, more trust and confidence in government is desirable. It's, it's consistent as a goal of uh, campaign finance reforms. So uh, a second kind of uh, natural experiment we could look at would be to say, well, just as we did before, um, we've got uh, 30, 40 years of uh, campaign finance reform in the states. We can look at public opinion on trust and confidence in state government in those states that change their regulations of independent expenditures, and of course many of them changed with Citizens United, um, and see if there's an effect on 
uh, public trust and confidence in state government. Compare that to the control states that didn't have changes. And once again, there's no relationship. It's, it's a zero estimate with a very large standard error. It's no statistically significant effect of campaign finance reforms on either typical measures of political corruption or trust and confidence in government. Now, this is all done very scientifically, so to prove that, I brought some diagrams. Uh, and you can see clearly that uh, there was a lot to it. All right, moving on. Um, uh, so campaign finance reforms don't work as advertised. That's something we could come back to and chat a bit more. I do want to give a reality check on the amount of independent expenditures. And so what this is reporting is, again, survey uh, responses from two different surveys, a uh, thousand-person nationally representative survey. And if you ask people about what percent of all political spending came from super PACs in the 2014 election, if you ask that after the 2014 election, and then similarly ask the same question after the 2016 election, um, the range of responses, the way to read this table, is that um, uh, 2 to 4 percent think that 0 to 24 percent of all political spending came from super PACs. And they're in, they're in the about right range, depending on the year, depending how you count um, independent spending. If we lump together all outside spending, including from political parties, including in primaries, you're going to get 10 to 20 percent as your right answer. Uh, you can see that you know, uh, 2 to 4 percent of people can come up with a, with a good guess. Um, uh, about 10 to 13 percent, um, you know, with a very generous curve, we could say that maybe they'll pass the class. But uh, the vast majority of people have a really outsized notion of how much political spending is coming from these demonized super PACs. And that reflects that sort of demagogic activity around Citizens United, where you've got, you know, almost half of the population think uh, 50 to 75 percent of total political spending is coming from super PACs. And, and these other folks, I don't even know what planet they live on, that they think more than 75% of uh, political spending is coming from super PACs. So of course people are concerned. And uh, you know, in, in any other um, uh, public policy debate, if people were so wildly misinformed about the way the world works, government would see it as their role to try to better inform them. Here are the health hazards of smoking. Don't drink when you're pregnant. Uh, don't take meth. It's bad for you. But when it comes to money and politics, we don't see those kinds of public service announcements that say, hey, people, it's not so bad. All of the political economy research for the last three, four decades has said that the role of money in politics is not nearly as important or influential as what the public opinion seems to think and what the uh, sort of opportunistic politicians who, who speak to that public, uh, how they describe it. So there is certainly a role for government here to improve information about uh, the role of money in politics and, and the role of uh, independent expenditures. That said, Independent expenditures aren't a large share of total spending. 
but in some races they are a large share. And in particular, if you look at um, if you look at Senate races, on average, uh, for the since Citizens United, um, uh, outside spending has accounted for about 30% of spending in Senate races, and in some races a much higher percentage. So we've got another kind of natural experiment. Instead of evaluating what are the effects of laws, we could evaluate what are the effects of this helicopter drop of outside money on a race on people's uh, opinions. Uh, now, in general, uh, to give you some background, it's well known in political science and political economy that campaign spending is in general associated with uh, more public engagement, higher voter turnout, more interest in public affairs, better ability to name the candidates, what party they're in, what are the main issues. So that shouldn't be surprising. It's advertising after all. So people tend to be more informed, however you mention it. Uh, but we could look at whether uh, this affects their trust and confidence and, and their, uh, this appearance of corruption might undermine trust and confidence. The old literature going back to the 90s and early 2000s finds that campaign spending in House and Senate elections tends to have positive effects or at least non-negative effects on a, a variety of uh, survey outcome measures, including trust and confidence in government. No significant negative effect on that. And the conclusion of those studies is that campaign spending is more boon than bane for democracy. People tend to be better informed. It's not undermining trust. But that's the old literature. That's before Citizens United. So is this still true in a post-Citizens United era? Uh, and so what we can do is look at outside spending and trust in government. Um, I'm just going to focus on trust in government and not other survey measures. Um, so I collected survey data from 2010, 12, 14, and 16, traditional kind of question about trust and confidence in, in government, matched that to spending data in sending us in um, Senate elections, and um, controlled for other things. For those who have ears to hear, this is a difference in differences analysis, and we're going to control for individual characteristics and other state-level characteristics. Uh, and and um, we can look at the regression coefficients of interest, again, for those who have ears to hear. Uh, for the rest of us, you can just focus on those asterisks. That means something important's going on here. So what this uh, table is telling me, if not you, is that uh, a one standard deviation increase in campaign spending in a Senate race post-Citizens United is associated with a 0.1 increase in the standard deviation of trust and confidence in government. That goes the unexpected direction, and it is statistically significant, but it's a very small effect. So again, no evidence that this helicopter drop of outside spending in Senate races is undermining trust and confidence in government. Uh, if anything, it's, it's the opposite, although it is a small effect. Now, the share of total spending that comes from the outside is negatively associated, but not statistically significant, and also a very small effect. A different way you could model this same thing would be to split what's the effect of candidate spending, what's the effect of uh, outside spending, and what you find here is it's candidate spending that seems to have the positive effect on trust and confidence in government, and outside spending has absolutely no effect on people's reported trust and confidence in government. So one of those, and you know, we need to check the robustness of results, so if we had another hour I could talk about that. But um, 
So candidate spending in uh, elections has a small but significantly positive effect on trust in federal government. Outside spending has an even smaller and no statistically significant uh, effect on trust in government. So these concerns that um, large amounts of outside spending post-Citizens United are undermining, undermining uh, public trust in government are just not borne out when you take a, a close look at it. So that said, it's probably a good time to then turn to if reforms don't have a much, much of an effect on people's opinions and actual incidences of spending don't have much effect on people's opinions, why is it that people's opinions are so very different? Now, how can we reconcile these two um, inconsistencies? And I think part of the answer is that um, people are concerned about money and politics, but they also don't like politics. And you can reform money and politics all you want, and you haven't changed politics. So, um, you know, coming from Missouri, I can assure you that uh, people view Washington as the, uh, you know, the, the honeypot or the cloaca of the country. And so, uh, you know, it's politics that people don't like. And you can look at some survey evidence if you ask people, you know, how about pressure from party leaders? on legislators to vote a certain way, is that corrupt? You get as many people saying that's corrupt as getting contributions from a special interest group. So uh, there is, I think that's sort of the answer to this um, apparent inconsistency is that uh, no matter what kind of reforms we try, people are going to be upset about the nature of politics because it's discomforting and distasteful to most decent people. Uh, I'm going to have to continue. Yesterday, I referred to myself and the day before with students as a swamp thing. So I guess I'll continue that. Uh, thanks, Jeff. And thanks very much for your comments. Very thorough and interesting. Uh, we go from two long-term friends of the Cato Institute. I've known both Bob and Jeff for well over a decade to a new friend, uh, Professor Martin Reddish. I, I first came to know uh, the work of Marty Reddish through his book, The Adversary First Amendment, which I highly recommend to everyone here. It's a very interesting book because it really is very solidly grounded in politics and the kinds of divisions and how the First Amendment and, and sort of arguments and disagreements and how that uh, the First Amendment is designed to accommodate us to them, not to, to snuff them out. Martin Reddish is the Lewis and Harriet Ansel Professor of Law and Public Policy at Northwestern University Pritzker's, Pritzker School of Law. He received his AB with highest honors in political science from the University of Pennsylvania, his JD magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. Professor Reddish is the author of 17 books and over 100 scholarly articles on the subject of free expression, constitutional law, federal jurisdiction, and civil procedure. In 2016, a study conducted by Hein Online ranked him as the 13th most cited legal scholar of all time. He is also, I'm pr proud to say, the author of uh, a Cato Institute policy analysis on his topic today, commercial speech. Welcome to Cato, Marty. Thank you, John. Uh, the subject of commercial speech is uh, a very personal one for me because it's had a lot to do with my career. Uh, the very first article I ever published was my senior thesis at law school, and it was entitled The First Amendment in the Marketplace, Commercial Speech, and the Values of Free Expression. 
At the time, this was 1970, no one, literally no one, had ever suggested that commercial advertising was deserving of First Amendment protection. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1942 had spent three paragraphs just shunting it aside as preposterous. And I decided to write my, my thesis on uh, making the argument that as a matter of First Amendment theory, commercial advertising was deserving of significant First Amendment protection. This was not a popular position at Harvard Law School. Uh, people keyed my car, uh, they pushed me into the lockers, and that was just the professors. Um, uh, I published the piece in 1971 in the George Washington Law Review, and it was received with some interest, some hostility, and then everything died down. Uh, un until a few years later when the Supreme Court decided commercial advertising deserved First Amendment protection. And over the years, that protection has grown, so now the whole field is, is a cottage industry. And a couple of years ago, people decided, well, where did all this start? And people began to trace it back to my 1971 article. They, they didn't mean it as a compliment. It, it was like saying he invented the Etzel or he managed Hillary Clinton's campaign or, or um, but it was an observation of fact. They said that it all started with, with my article. In fact, the Washington Legal Foundation just called me the, the godfather of commercial speech. And one of my colleagues said, I think if they gave you a paternity test, they'd find your DNA uh, in it. So you're not just the... Uh, the Godfather. So let's, let's talk about what my theory was and how it's played out. I began by focusing on the leading First Amendment theorist who was against protecting commercial speech, who thought only political speech should be protected. That was Alexander Mickeljohn, who wrote from the late 1940s into the mid-1960s, uh, the only free speech scholar ever to have his picture on the cover of Time magazine because he was a strong opponent of, of uh, Senator McCarthy. Mickeljohn's theory was that the First Amendment springs from the principles of self-government, that free speech facilitates, fosters democratic self-government because the people we call the governors really aren't the governors. They are the agents of the governors. We are the governors when we go into the voting booth. And because we are the governors, we need to have fully informed decisions about issues of government. So he focused the First Amendment right solely in the listener. He said there, the speaker has no First Amendment right. The, the First Amendment is not about um, the right of a person to speak. It's uh, about the need to have everything that's worthwhile being said. So the focus was on the listener. And he said, because political speech was so important, speech related to this self-governing function, he excluded everything else and put it under the Fifth Amendment due process clause. And it occurred to me that, ironically, Mickeljohn's theory actually could be turned around on him and uh, be established as a form of a justification for protection of commercial speech. If you look at the First Amendment right through the lens of the listener, we are private self-governors. 
just as we make collective self-government decisions out of growing out of the moral principles that underlie a commitment to democracy, so too do we control our own lives by making private choices. Imagine the following hypothetical society. Every decision, literally every decision, what we'll have for dinner, what television we'll buy, what car we'll buy, is made by collective vote. Uh, everybody will raise their hand and the majority will determine what car is going to be purchased. Micklejohn would have had to say that any speech about the merits of that car was quote unquote political because it would help us perform our self-governing function in the collective sense. But now assume we've modified the society to make it look much like our own, where we have ceded to the individual certain private choices where the determining power and the consequences are not one one millionth of the whole, but 100%. The theory that commercial speech doesn't deserve protection would say all of a sudden, when we have 100% of the decision-making power and 100% of the consequences on ourselves, we no longer have the constitutionally protected interest in receiving information. It's completely irrational. So what I tried to do in my article was turn Micklejohn on his head and establish that the very same listener-centric perspective justified significant protection for fostering the values of private self-government. Five years after my article was published, the Supreme Court in the Virginia Board of Pharmacy case decided commercial speech deserved substantial First Amendment protection, a very controversial decision. And in it, the court emphasized that commercial speech receives a limited measure of protection commensurate with its reduced position in the values of the democratic process. So I considered this sort of a 50% victory because I thought the court was understating the importance of commercial speech. But the most troubling factor in giving reduced protection to commercial speech was how the court defined commercial speech. When I wrote my article, I had nothing to go on. Nobody had ever discussed this uh, before. So I just assumed commercial speech meant speech about the relative merits of commercial products and services. Uh, that's not how the Supreme Court defined it. The court defined it as speech that does no more than propose a commercial transaction. Think of what that means. We're not talking about all speech about the relative merits of commercial products and services. We're talking about speech that advocates it for purposes of a commercial transaction. So think of what that means. Ralph Nader criticizes the Chevrolet Corvair. Well, he's certainly not proposing a commercial transaction, so his speech gets full First Amendment protection. General Motors responds with a defense of the safety of the Chevrolet Corvair. All of a sudden, that's commercial speech. That receives reduced protection. So what we have is one side of a debate getting full First Amendment protection, and the other side of a debate getting less protection. This is exactly what happened in a real case, uh, Nike versus Caskey, which the Supreme Court heard argument on and then uh, dismissed cert as improvidently granted, as they put it. Um, 
60 Minutes and the New York Times had accused Nike of using sweatshops to make their, their shoes in foreign countries. And Nike took out a press release saying that they didn't do that and someone in California sued them for false advertising and they received reduced protection because what they were saying was an advertisement whereas the people uh, criticizing Nike received full First, uh, First Amendment protection. So basically what we're doing is distinguishing First Amendment protection based on the perspective of profit motivation or self-interest. But in no other area of First Amendment law does the self-interest of the speaker in any way reduce protection. When, when uh, welfare recipients picket for an increase in their benefits, that speech has, has, has an economic self-interest. When uh, officers of corporations or labor unions um, demand that NAFTA be repealed, that is for economic self-interest, and there's nothing wrong with that. The First Amendment is not the preserve of Mother Teresa. We can use the First Amendment to advance our interests, but when it comes to commercial advertising, when it comes to commercial speech, all of a sudden, the speaker motivation reduces the protection because the, the speaker is trying to gain a profit. What this ignores is Micklejohn's listener-centric perspective. Micklejohn himself ignored it, but uh, I, I urge us not to do so. If the important First Amendment dynamic is the benefit to the recipient of the speech, why do we care whether the speaker had an economic motivation? because we can't trust the quality of the speech because it's said by an advocate that never bothers us in the political process. Why do we all of a sudden be, get concerned about it here? What, what I suggested a few years ago, and this is, to me this is not a left-right liberal conservative kind of thing. I'm, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Uh, when it comes to Constitutional theory, I hate everybody and the feelings mutual. Uh, uh, I suggested that basically the, the, the left-wing constitutional scholars who believe in strong speech uh, protection in the political process, but reject it, most of them categorically, in the commercial process, are basically exercising a kind of twilight zone viewpoint regulation. It is a hostility not to the particular advertisement being uh, stated, but to the underlying capitalistic perspective. Because there is other, no other rational way to distinguish the kind of self-promotional speech in the political process that they fully protect and this kind of speech or the fact that they would give full protection to consumer reports, which is speaking about nothing but commercial products and services, but re uh, reduce it for uh, uh, advocacy. The Supreme Court basically has come to the view that with a few exceptions, commercial speech deserves virtually full First Amendment protection. The last time the government won a commercial speech suppression case in the Supreme Court 
was 1993. And there have been numerous losses since then. And this has, got, uh, has led me to adopt the, the label, the equivalency principle, to describe the level of value seen in both commercial and non-commercial speech. In 1996, in the 44 Liquor Mart case, Justice Stevens, writing for the plurality, adopts what I consider the core notion of commercial speech protection. He says, government may not selectively suppress truthful commercial speech advocating lawful behavior because government fears that people will make the wrong decision on the basis of that speech. And this is really the core notion of what it's all about. It's a question of the, uh, the liberal democratic social contract. It's the anti-paternalistic model that we use in other areas of free speech. The, the Bush administration could not have suppressed anti-Iraq war speech on the grounds that people might make the wrong decision on the basis of that speech. Similarly, the government shouldn't be allowed to suppress truthful, lawful commercial speech on the grounds that people might make the wrong decision. Either people are sheep or they're not. Either they're capable of making their own decisions or they aren't. And if we say they aren't, then we have basically discarded uh, the foundations of the democratic system. So the irony is, while commercial speech was purportedly excluded from the First Amendment scope because it really didn't deal with anything political, in reality, what turns on the decision to protect commercial speech is a commitment to core notions of democratic theory. Uh, the Supreme Court all but formally adopted my equivalency principle in a case called Sorrell versus IMS Health, where uh, the state of Vermont was drawing a, a, a discrimination between drug manufacturer speakers and academic researchers for no reason other than one was a drug manufacturer and the other was an academic speaker. And the court said this discrimination deserves strict scrutiny, which means it is virtually uh, unconstitutional. Uh, because it was a discrimination based on viewpoint. And the court was right. What it didn't fully acknowledge, however, was that the court's own commercial speech test, which gave less protection to speech for no reason other than that it was commercial, itself was discriminatory in the exact same way. So the court's own pre-existing commercial speech test violated the anti-discrimination principle adopted in Sorrell. <clears throat> the gap in the equivalency principle is false commercial speech. The Supreme Court has categorically excluded all commercial speech uh, with knowledge of falsity, with negligence, without negligence. If it's false, it's not protected. That's not the way the court approaches false non-commercial speech. Um, in, the, in the area of uh, defamation or harm to reputation, the Supreme Court had said it's only if 
the falsity is with knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity that uh, the, the speech is unprotected. Well, what's the basis for the distinction? Three reasons have been given. One, the profit incentive for commercial speech will keep it hardy, will keep the, the speakers speaking and prevent a chill. Well, I don't find that particularly persuasive because a lot of non-commercial speech is for personal gain and personal self-interest. So if, if that speech isn't going, uh, is going to be chilled, why wouldn't the commercial speech still be chilled? In fact, companies often may draw economic decisions and will be very risk averse not to say things that might give rise to problems. The second argument that's been used is verifiability. The truth or falsity of commercial claims are always verifiable, whereas claims in the political process are much more difficult to verify. Not totally true either way. Uh, a lot of commercial claims turn on scientific theories that may or may not be true and are not easily verifiable. And by the same token, a lot of political claims are simply statements of fact that are easily verifiable. Finally, the argument is that there's deadline pressure in the non-commercial press world that doesn't affect uh, advertisers. But much non-commercial speech has no deadline pressure. So the distinction is basically a false one. Does this mean that false commercial speech should be protected? Mostly no, but I think it's important to understand why. The reason false commercial speech should not be protected in most instances is not because commercial speech is of lesser value, but rather because by its nature, commercial speech causes, false commercial speech causes more significant uh, unprotected harm. I've seen five different kinds of, I've set up a, cat, a taxonomy of harms that can flow from false speech. Financial harm, you could be defrauded. Harm to your health or safety, harm to reputation, collective political harm, or interpersonal harm. The Supreme Court has declared the first two of these, and to some extent the third to be of significant interest. False commercial speech, knowingly false commercial speech, will always have a financial harm. You're proposing a purchase. And if the purchase is made under false pretenses, there'll be that financial harm. But this is true in the political process as well. When Stephen Glass or Jason Blair uh, wrote articles that were false in either the New York Times or the New Republic, no one claimed they had First Amendment protection to do that because they were selling newspapers or magazines under false pretenses. Similarly, health or safety, false commercial speech can often have a, have a significant harm on health or safety. Um, that's not true of most false political speech. Uh, the other categories the Supreme Court has said are not necessarily uh, causing significant harm. So th the most political speech, if they cause any kind of harm, 
will be in those, those other categories. So the reason commercial, false commercial speech is not protected has nothing to do with its reduced value. So I think what we have to, to do is recognize what I call the danger of reverse dilution. That if we start recognizing that uh, truthful, lawful commercial speech can be suppressed because we don't trust the citizenry to make a valid choice, we will have provided a, a conceptual and moral foundation for much more sweeping violations of the, the basic precepts of the liberal democratic social contract. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I just wanted to mention, which I think I forgot to, that uh, uh, Professor Reddish's policy analysis is available gratis outside, along with much other material. If, if, for example, you're here for a continuing legal education credits, you will find you should have been given a binder with some articles in them already. Many of the articles that will be uh, discussed or writings of by uh, speakers today are going to be out there. I would mention a couple of books also from the Cato Institute, The Tyranny of Silence by Fleming Rose, whom we'll hear from later, and uh, an excellent book by Jonathan Rauch, We'll have an audiobook version of it, Kindly Inquisitors, a book that is, uh, despite being uh, almost 25 years old, is more relevant than ever. And I would encourage you to, to check out both of those uh, in the break that is coming. But before we get to that break, we're going to have a question and answer session. Please wait uh, for the, to be called on after you raise your hand. I'll generally and rather rudely in, uh, gesture toward you and say the person on the aisle. Sorry about that, but uh, that seems to be the way it is. Wait for the microphone, uh, and so everyone here and online can hear your question. And we also ask that you announce your name and any affiliation. However, as time has gone on, and I've worked more in these areas of uh, anonymity and campaign finance, I've become more and more... Uh, become more and more uncomfortable with that. If you want to anonymously ask your question and you feel how you have a good reason, you can do that here at the Cato Institute. So, so feel free, but generally you're among friends both here and online. So you, if you want others to know uh, something about you, please do so. Questions? Gentleman in the front here. Uh, my name is Stephen Keat. I'm currently a private citizen, but I used to be a federal government employee. And my question is directed at Professor Milo. Uh, when I was working for the federal government, I was considered to be an economic officer with the State Department, so I guess I can be accused of being an economist. Um, I have a question for you, something that I believe to be the case, but I want to see if there's any basis for it. It would be my assumption that money flows to candidates who are perceived to be winning. And so therefore, if you see a lot of money having gone to a winning candidate, all that, I mean, that doesn't mean that the money necessarily influenced the election. What it means is that people contributed money with the hope that that would gain them influence after the election. Is there any economic evidence for that? Uh, yes, absolutely. So a, a, um, you know, a simplistic look at this idea does uh, our elective offices for sale to the highest bidder would note that most winners of elective office spend more than losers. 
but it, it is the case that uh, uh, there are attributes of winners that cause them to both win over voters and to win over contributors, which is they have pleasing policy positions and you know, are expected to do well. So once you account for that kind of factor, then we find very, very negligible effects at the margin of campaign spending. So if you were to make small changes, $10,000 in a house race or even $100,000 one way or the other, you wouldn't see any observable effect on the outcomes. Um, uh, you know, when we're talking about a million dollars, you, you start seeing some sort of effect, but, but not nearly the, uh, to the extreme of whoever spends the most is going to win the office. Other question, the gentleman two in right there, David. Okay. Hi. Uh, I guess my question is more for Reddish. Um, one of the big concerns with the recent election has been the spread of fake news and the concerns about how uh, paid promotions on social media have impacted the, sp the spread of fake news, especially, um, especially due to the nature of social media, the way uh, information easily spreads without the ability to... Uh, really accurately fact check everything that gets spread on fake news, uh, that gets spread on social media. So um, I guess my question is what, is, what in your view is a permissible way for these, for corporations to, in some, to moderate the effect of fake news and the way that paid, these kinds of paid promotions are used to influence electoral results without straying into the realm of censorship, which obviously is problematic. Well, I, I, I think the question is not so much what can they do. They can do anything they really want because uh, they are the private controller of it. The tougher question is what can government make them do? And I, I think that's an issue we're, we're going to have to face. Uh, traditionally, and the, the key isn't that they come into the form of paid advertisements. Uh, these kinds of... of uh, misinformation programs can can be disseminated just 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 generally, and this creates a much bigger question about uh, the general assumption that even knowingly false political statements that are non-defamatory are fully protected. Uh, we have to deal now with conscious plans to defraud the electorate, and maybe we should recognize that being defrauded out of your vote is as harmful as being defrauded out of your money. Would either of our other panelists like to comment on that? The only comment I would add is I think that uh, one of the interesting threads in this debate that we're going to have to follow is the extent to which a concern focused on ferreting out foreign national influence creates momentum toward the structure of rules that could have an effect on domestic speakers as well. Uh, in, in other words, there's, a, there's an immediate issue that I think people have recognized. Um, when we talk about fake news, fake news is promulgated, say, by foreign government interests. And then there's the whole question of, you know, sort of how we treat information that's bandied about with, you know, relative recklessness about accuracy by domestic speakers. That's just an incident of the way we conduct our politics. When we, some of the public debate now suggests that some of the overall concerns about money and politics that Jeff cited uh, are going to get sort of, if you will, linked into the very specific issue raised by Russian interference in the 2016 election. 
So it's a public policy matter of making sure we're addressing the, the real problem without creating a set of different problems for domestic speakers is going to be a challenge, I think. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman right here on the edge or the row, the aisle. My name is Tim Hartnett. Um, I don't really have any affiliation. I've published about a dozen articles on uh, Lou Rockwell, though. But my question is about, I mean, I think it's like admittedly seen by the poll, not just by the polls, but by lots of other things, like this McGovern guy had a new constitutional amendment, uh, that there's a political will to actually cause this finance, campaign finance reform to actually pass eventually. And it, what uh, most of the arguments I've seen seem to bypass entirely is the, I, the whole idea of what it means is government control of the media, or, or at least government collusion with major media. Because, I mean, like, I can, you can take, there's numerous other cases, but just to give you a really gross example, uh, nobody's saying anything about stopping NBC or ABC or CBS or any, anybody like that during during a camp during you know the, the 60 days prior to a campaign which was the, the thing the original legislation said so that meant that 24 hours a day all the all the networks could do what they wanted now to give you an example of how bad that can be back in 1929 when the when the uh, NBC or the RCA pool uh, pool went on in the on the Wall Street uh, on the New York Stock Exchange uh, the Sarnoff family kept control of most of the stock in the company. And that proved they were in on it, because otherwise they couldn't have done that. They would have had to sell it. Now, at the same time, they were reporting on financial matters to the whole United States. So, I mean, the point I'm making is that if the government can control any uh, speech, then they should be able to control... The, the, the 24 hour a day speech that's made by major media. So, I mean, th that just knocks the whole argument for political s speech being controlled in any way down right there, doesn't it? Or am I wrong? Uh, I, I'm very sympathetic to your, to your point. I mean, I, I, I watch Rachel Maddow, for, for whom I have great respect, rail against Citizens United, and I, I, I'm thinking of the irony that she's getting paid all this money by a very large corporation to attack corporations' rights to, to spend money. And basically, I think you nailed it, we're basically trying to turn it into one big antitrust violation, that it's only the uh, official corporate media that has the right to speak, and other corporations uh, can be excluded from that. Uh, I just add my listener perspective here that the issue is not whether the corporation has the First Amendment right to speak, but whether listeners have the right to get their information. I always thought the First Amendment thought more information was better than less, and, and then I find everybody thinks Citizens United was the worst case since Dred, Dred Scott. I can put a few in there, like <laughs> Korematsu versus U.S. and uh, maybe Bush versus Gore. Um, but uh, I, I, I think you're really on to something. As I think I made it clear, I'm, I'm actually somewhat of an outlier in my own party in the sense, in many respects, I'm very skeptical, uh, certainly about some of the more uh, recent, uh, since 2000, McCain-Feingold, et cetera, proposals to restrict money in politics uh, on a number of grounds. But I do think that Citizens United was wrongly decided. 
And I think that for two reasons. First of all, I think the way in which we fashion any rules whatsoever to limit money in politics through the legislative or judicial process have to be credible. They have to be well-reasoned and cautious and incremental. Uh, and Citizens United was a lunge in the direction that it need not go. It didn't distinguish, it, it had before it a, non, a small nonprofit ideological corporation that made a movie that was accessible only to those, uh, quite frankly, who wanted to see it. And they wound up uh, making sweeping declarations on the First Amendment theory and the role of corporations in American life. But frankly, in my view, it was a very shoddy piece of work. Uh, and as a result, I think um, the court made even more trouble for itself with the way it reached the decision uh, than perhaps uh, the content alone might have invited. I'm not sure about that, but I think it certainly didn't help matters. Uh, secondly, I, I think we have to be realistic about one thing. The Federal Election Campaign Act of 1974, the so-called and not correctly named post-Watergate reforms, put some fundamental controls, including transparency requirements, in place. As a matter of the political culture we have, we're never going to get rid of all of these. And if we try to get rid of them, if we, if we, if we completely ignore the desire for some reasonable regulation of the flow of money in politics, uh, then we're going to invite a counter-reaction that's going to result in a regulatory exercise that's going to be even more damaging and more excessive, more in the nature of no overkill. And we're seeing that battle now play out over transparency. I think there are very difficult issues presented by disclosure policy. Uh, speaking of John's inviting people to speak anonymously, there are some significant interests in anonymous speech. But the notion that we're going to have no transparency requirements at all, uh, I just think is unsustainable. And so I think we have to think carefully about these issues, but recognize that we have to arrive at some reasonable uh, middle ground. Jeff, anything? Um, well, you know, we, we can get a picture of what the world might look like if there were many fewer campaign finance regulations by looking at the states. And there's still a, a handful of states where anyone, anyone, any organization can give or spend any amount um, on behalf of a state candidate. And again, if you, you conduct the kind of natural experiment that I talked about where you compare changes in laws, you know, do these states where it's kind of the Wild West, like, like Missouri until recently, where anyone can give any amount, do they systematically have bad public policies that look like they're dominated by corporate interests? Uh, they don't look different. They don't look different in terms of their tax structure, tax breaks, or the social safety net. Once you control for other things, it's, it's the other things that affect public policy. So uh, we don't see that, you know, if you were to wipe off all campaign contribution limits um, that you would have dramatically different political outcomes. Gentlemen in the back row. Uh, Professor Josh Sarnoff, no relation as far as I know to the Sarnoff stock interests. Um, so building on Professor Reddish's comments about the different kinds of values that are affected, and also recognizing the dramatic uh, breakdown of the public-private distinction in life and in conduct, and the earlier tendency towards an anti-paternalist stance towards government regulation. Now we think government regulation is usually good. How, other than explicitly and clearly, should the courts value regulating public speech of all sorts, including commercial speech, relative to the values of falsity prevention, 
protecting people from hearing the wrong things and making bad judgments. Oh, I'm not sure what you mean, hearing the wrong things. I mean, that uh, determined wrong by... The intentional frauds, all of the concerns oh, uh, oh. that you're listing. Well, I, I, I think the way they, the court does it, as I said, is by focusing not on some assumption of lower value. Whenever I debate Robert Post about this, he always says, well, obviously the court thinks commercial speech is worthy of less protection because it gives no protection to false commercial speech where it does give protection to false other kinds of speech. And I've tried to develop the, my response is that that distinction is premised on just the differing nature of harms that flow from just one being the kind of speech that it is. And I, I think that's the way you rationalize it, focus on the different kinds of harms rather than assuming there is some lower, lower value, which I find indefensible. Uh, let's go to the left here, uh, just inside the doorway, please. And this will probably be our last question. We're about out of time. Hi, Galen Carey, National Association of Evangelicals. The Masterpiece Cake case features artistic expression that is both uh, commercial and religious. And how do those things interplay in the government's interest in uh, going after the cake baker? Uh, well, in part, that's going to be the topic of our next panel, I would have to oh. say. But if uh, our panelists would like to say something on that topic, please do. Uh, I don't see that as a free speech interest. Whether it's a religious freedom interest is, is really outside of my area of expertise. But uh, I, I think, think of it in terms of, of a racial discrimination situation, which isn't the one we're dealing with, but just hypothetically. Someone has a First Amendment right to believe in racial segregation. Someone has a First Amendment right to advocate racial segregation. That person does not have a First Amendment right to engage in racial segregation. And the same thing with the baker. You, you do not have a First Amendment right to discriminate against a customer because you are against his or her sexual uh, preference. You may think that you should be allowed to on a moral level. We could debate that. I don't see how that's an exercise of free speech because I consider that conduct not not expression. Well, that's a perfect transition to our next panel, as I said, which will take place in 15 minutes. For now, we're going to take that 15-minute break. Water is available in the Winter Garden on the first floor where you came in. Restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Uh, turn left when you reach the bottom of the stairs and the restrooms are down the hallway. And I would like to thank our panel. An excellent start to our conference. <laughs>